Radio, deepening understanding, making connections. Good afternoon. This is WVEWLP Brattleboro, 107.7 FM, your community radio station. We are not currently streaming online, but hopefully we will be streaming online in January, so stay in tune. You are listening to Indigo Radio, deepening understanding and making connections. You can also find us on Facebook at Indigo Radio and on our Instagram. The views of this show are those of the guests and hosts, not the radio station. Indigo Radio is a group of area educators seeking to learn through engaging with others in our community and throughout the world. I'm Corey Sorensen, a fourth grade teacher at Guilford Central School, and I'm here with Anna. Anna, would you like to introduce yourself? Yeah, hi. My name is Anna Milani, and I'm a local educator and also a current graduate student at UMass Amherst. And today's focus on Indigo Radio is going to be on the history and tradition of Thanksgiving, what is also known as the National Day of Mourning. The National Day of Mourning began as a protest in 1970 and took place at Plymouth, uh, or in Plymouth, Massachusetts, where people gather each year. This year was actually the 48th year. It is organized by the United American Indians of New England. And Corey and I uh, were there this year with uh, a number of other friends from Brattleboro Solidarity and Indigo Radio. So we're going to bring you our experiences today there. To give you just uh, a little bit from the United American Indians New England website about the National Day of Mourning. They write, Thanksgiving Day is a reminder of the genocide of millions of Native people, the theft of Native lands, and the relentless assault on Native culture. Participants in National Day of Mourning honor Native ancestors and the struggles of Native, Native peoples to survive today. It is day of remembrance and spiritual connection, as well as a protest of the racism and oppression which Native Americans continue to experience. Today we're going to be joined by Roberto Barrero. He is a member of the indigenous Taino Nation. He is the programs and communications coordinator for the International Indian Treaty Council, and he's also the president of the United Confederation of Taino People. Uh, but before we are joined by Roberto, we are going to talk a little bit about the myth and history of Thanksgiving, which in 1863, President Lincoln made Thanksgiving a national holiday. Corey, I would love to hear what you learned about Thanksgiving growing up. Okay, well, the what I learned about Thanksgiving is probably the, you know, the quintessential what people learn about Thanksgiving. And my memories, thinking back, is uh, always the food and having the dinner with my family. But also remembering these images of the pilgrim hats and the Native American headdresses and this big dinner that people had and shared together. So my memories of Thanksgiving growing up essentially was that Thanksgiving is a happy time. Uh, when the fact is that for many indigenous people, Thanksgiving is a time of mourning. It's a time of remembering how a gift of generosity was rewarded by a theft of land and by extermination of many from disease and, and near total destruction of people. Yeah, I, that just reminds me of what you're saying. I saw this headline recently that was about how fall, this time of year, is a, a big F you to Native Americans because you have Columbus Day in early October and then comes Halloween where there's a lot of cultural appropriation in which people are uh, dressing up in very inappropriate and racist costumes. And then comes Thanksgiving, which often invisibilizes Native American struggle and the true history of what happened um, in these lands. Right. Yeah, so we, get, we hear the story of the pilgrims coming over on the Mayflower and just that the Native Americans and the pilgrims were besties in the words of a fifth grader. And... Um, I mean, that's clearly not true. I mean, I also remember learning about Squanto as, as um, 
the Native American that helped the pilgrims and that, that this was kind of a mutual relationship of helping each other. But what we didn't learn about Squanto and the reason that he learnt, learned English was that he was captured as a slave and brought to Spain and sold to Spain where he then escaped and made his way after several years back to uh, the Cape to just to find that his entire tribe had died from disease that the um, that had been brought over from Europe. Mm-hmm. We're going to be joined by Roberto in just a minute, and we're going to play a song called Burn Your Village to the Ground by a tribe called Red. Okay. And we'll be right back. film industry, excuse me, and on television in movie reruns, and also with recent happenings at Wounded Knee. We're taking the land which is rightfully ours. Years from now, my people will be forced to live in mobile homes on reservations. Your people will wear cardigans and drink highballs. We will sell our bracelets by the roadsides. You will play golf and enjoy hot hors d'oeuvres. My people will have pain and degradation. Your people will have stick shifts. The gods of my tribe have spoken. They have said, do not trust the pilgrims.
everything's being ruined. They don't care about people living on that land. Well, the world is disaster. It's something, it's, it's like genocide is something for Indian people. So. Hundreds of indigenous women murdered or missing in Canada. A haunting national disgrace with no solution in sight. How long has there been no water where you live? For years. And all the springs, the spring water, they're, they're dried out. Sometimes they have to kill us. They have to kill us. Because they can't break our spirit. And we are back. That was a song called Burn Your Village to the Ground by A Tribe Called Red. And if you are just joining us, this is Indigo Radio. And I'm here with Corey, a fourth grade teacher in the area. My name is Anna, and I'm also a local educator and student at UMass Amherst. We're talking today about Thanksgiving, or what is also known as the National Day of Mourning, in which uh, Corey and I and a number of us from Brattleboro Solidarity were able to join in that day at Plymouth Mass. And before we left, Corey was talking a little bit about his own experience with learning about Thanksgiving and I think back to mine, my family actually is from Australia and we moved to the States when I was 10. And I think about how the pattern is the same in Australia where we did not, I never grew up learning about indigenous people of Australia. I know that I have a faint memory of learning about Captain Cook and his quote unquote discovery of Australia, just as we are taught here that Columbus discovered America. Uh, however, I think it's really important to think about language and how really it should not be discovered because people were here. There is really an occupation of these lands and there is similar patterns with the treatment of Native Americans here in this country and with the indigenous Australians also. Uh, and then I, I know that our family, when we moved here, Thanksgiving became this thing that we just sort of did every year. And I don't remember... I feel like we didn't have much of an attachment to it. We sort of just um, went along with it, and we'd have a nice family day, which, like Corey said, look, that's a nice thing to do. But it wasn't until a lot later that I learned more of the history and to understand why we do celebrate this and how much is sort of washed away around the real history of what happened and that that really silences so many voices. It silences a lot of pain and it's an attempt to continue to squash the resistance of native peoples. So we're going to continue talking about this. Um, we hopefully are going to get Roberto Barrero on the line. Uh, he is a member of the indigenous Taino nation and he, Corey and I met him, uh, at Plymouth, um, and I think he is just going to be joining us and getting him on the line, and again, he is the Programs and Communications Coordinator for the International Indian Treaty Council and also the President of the United Confederation of Taino People. Hi, Roberto. Hello. Hi, can you hear us? Yes. Hi. This is Anna you're talking with. Hello, Anna. How are you? I'm good, thank you. How are you doing? I'm well, thank you. Great. We are so thankful to you to join us here on Indigo Radio. Uh, we started the show just giving people a little bit of history of the day of mourning and, our, and Corey and I's own experience about growing up, learning about Thanksgiving, which was very much void of indigenous struggle. Um, which I think a lot of people grow up not really learning the true history. So we would love for you to tell us where you are from and the work that you are currently involved in. Okay, great. Well, thank you very much for having me on. I appreciate it and appreciate the efforts uh, to educate people on indigenous peoples and the real meanings behind some of these uh, holidays and other Americana icons that are celebrated in what's now known as the U.S. today. Uh, my name's uh, Roberto Mugaro Bojero. I'm a member of the indigenous uh, Taino nation. Uh, the Tainos were the very first indigenous peoples in the Western Hemisphere 
uh, to be called Indians. They were the folks who, my ancestors, they were the folks who first met Columbus when he came over in 1492 into the Caribbean region. And I work currently for the International Indian Treaty Council. And this is an uh, indigenous rights organization that's been around since uh, the 1970s. It was actually formed out of the what was happening uh, during the 1970s when many American Indians were starting to stand up uh, more visibly for their rights and, uh, you know, about the Wounded Knee occupation, Alcatraz, etc. Mm-hmm. So um, Treaty Council kind of came out of all of that, and it was established in 1974 at the Standing Rock uh, Indian Reservation. And in 1977, it became the very first indigenous people's organization to uh, receive uh, ECOSOC status at the United Nations. And uh, so since 1977 to now, it's been at the forefront of advocating and fighting for the respect of the rights of indigenous peoples, uh, not only in, in the U.S., but throughout the Americas and the world. And... I also work uh, with the United Confederation of Taino People, um, uh, the current president of the Confederation, and again, very happy to be here with you. Yeah, great. And where are you based out of? Oh, based right now uh, out of New York. And okay. I, uh, the work I do for the Treaty Council, I'm um, attending a lot of meetings at the United Nations that have to do with or are focused on indigenous peoples. So uh, they needed a New York representative, and I was available. Okay. And when you think about the the day of mourning, the National Day of Mourning, can you tell us how many years you've been going to Plymouth and what that day means to you? Well, I think uh, most of, uh, at the forefront, it's it's really a day of solidarity uh, for Indigenous peoples, uh, Indigenous peoples' uh, rights struggles, and in particular, I think that with the focus on Standing Rock uh, recently, you know, there's there's a lot of attention on what's going on out west, and I thought it would be a good idea to, uh, for me personally, to come back to the East Coast and uh, reacquaint myself with the struggles of of Indigenous peoples on the East Coast. I have been working a little bit with the Ramapo. Lenape people, uh, the UCTP, or the United Confederation of Taino People, and the Ramapo have a treaty of friendship uh, together, so they've been going through some struggles uh, with land that they own in Mawa, New Jersey, and their efforts to uh, protest against a a pipeline coming in uh, that direction. And so I wanted to uh, have an opportunity to reacquaint myself with some of the other issues of, of Northeast indigenous peoples. So I took my family, uh, my wife and my two daughters, uh, to the National Day of Mourning so that they can get a better idea of some of the mythology that's built around the Thanksgiving holiday. And especially since my daughters go to a public school, you know, a lot of this mythology is just pushed upon them daily. And so while they're young, I wanted them to, to understand that what's often promoted in school is not always correct, and there are other perspectives and and real perspectives that continue to affect indigenous peoples here in the United States and and elsewhere. So um, myself personally, I've attended uh, one National Day of Mourning uh, many years ago, and just because of my own schedule and and my own things, I, I have not been able to get back there personally. But other Taino people have, and, uh, you know, it's all good. We can't all be in everywhere at the same time, so right. it, it's really important that, however, in my opinion, it's it's important that we kind of circle around and come back and, and you know, reestablish ties, re-state um, our solidarity for each other and for each other's struggles. So that's, that's what it was really about for me, and uh, as well as trying to educate uh, my children in, in a good way. Yeah, how old are your daughters, and, and what did they, what do you feel like they took from that day and being there? Well, uh, my daughter, Kayani, the youngest one, she's nine, and my uh, daughter, Mainaku, she's 11. And I think that, 
you know, at that age, they're kind of just absorbing, right, and, and looking yeah. around and listening and, and seeing. And it, it's certainly not the first, um, I, I don't know if, if you would term the day of mourning a protest or, or at least action. You know, it's not the first action they, <laughs> they've been to. Uh, but so they're, they're kind of aware of, you know, some of the things that, that we talk about and, and some of the things going on. But one thing that, that stuck out, uh, for at least for my daughter uh, Mainaku, she was really surprised about the stories of the the pilgrims and the grave robbing, and and that kind of stuck out for her. So it's those kind of I think those kind of seeds that that can help them later on that they understand that there are other perspectives to these narratives that they so often hear and that are so popular in, in American culture, mm-hmm. but they're really based on a lot of mythology. And it's the same thing with Columbus Day. You know, we've had to deal with this in their schools and talking about how uh, Columbus was this great, uh, this great man. And, you know, really nobody mentions who Columbus met or the impacts, and or the impacts are just very... Um, lightly addressed and and certainly not in a way to to really make uh, students feel uh, remorse or, or or just concern or or even want to question uh, what's going on with indigenous peoples so you know we've had to go to school and kind of speak up for you know, hey there's some, there's another perspective here Columbus is not considered a hero and and I think little by little this has affected um, you know the national narrative, and now we have all these um, cities a- around the U.S. changing from Columbus Day to Indigenous Peoples Day, or adding more of a focus on Indigenous peoples. And, and it's you know good debate. I mean, right now in New York, uh, there's a hearing going on uh, regarding monuments mm-hmm. and public monuments. And one of the monuments on the question is the Columbus statue at Columbus Circle in Manhattan. And uh, I was uh, able to testify uh, to call for the removal of that statue because uh, obviously for Taino and and many other indigenous peoples, uh, this is not, uh, Columbus is not something or a symbol that we sanctify. For us, it's a symbol of genocide. And the fact that people are still propping up those type of symbols really gives gives you a sense of, you know how people are really viewing the state or the the issues of indigenous peoples today, and so it seems that you know because uh, our communities are maybe uh, smaller uh, today than others, sometimes it feels like our voice is not is not valued as much, and certainly not our perspectives. Because if our perspectives were valued. Uh, those type of statues would be seen in the same way that people view and are outraged uh, with Confederate flags and what those flags represent. So there's, to me, there's no difference between a Confederate flag and and what people are saying is wrong with the Confederate flag and and Columbus statues. But, you know, we heard from the hearings that uh, many Italians are are viewing this and and our call for the removal of these statues as a, as a slap in their face and that, you know, we're not being considerate of Italian feelings, but, you know, the way I see it, they're not really being considerate of our feelings. And, and yeah. you know, because there may be a, a larger community today in New York of Italians than Native Americans, that doesn't mean that their pride uh, should supersede our tragedy, right? Mm-hmm. And so, uh, you know, our voice is just as valid as theirs, and, and so are our perspectives. Mm-hmm. Right. Roberto, I'm a... I'm, a lot of us on this show are teachers and educators in the area. I personally teach fourth grade, so I'm thinking about your nine-year-old daughter. Um, and you've touched on this about uh, teaching about different narratives in schools and going into the schools. What, what words of advice do you have for teachers in talking about and teaching our students these alternative narratives and bringing in voices? Well, I, I think that your second part is is a uh, is a good advice bringing in voices and, and either you know physically having people come and speak to students i've been asked for example to go to many schools over the years and provide you know an alternate view but i also think that you know at the higher level in these educational institutions in the principals and 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 the vice principals they also need to be educated and be on board uh, with what's going on and to see the flaws and the gaps 
in what's being presented. And, you know, right now we're in a, in a very interesting time uh, in the United States where there's this kind of rise of conservatism and there's been a push to kind of stamp out alternative narratives, giving the impression that they're somehow anti-American or they're not patriotic. But I, I think that, you know, a country that purports itself to be such a bastion of human rights and, and to be one of the most powerful countries of the world, I think the country itself would be seen even more powerful if it allowed for real critique and real critique of its actions. So as big as the country is, the country has to be uh, willing to accept big critique as well. And just because they may look uh, good, or the U.S. looks good at, at a certain level, certainly does not mean that everything is okay at every level and for everyone. And I mean, the statistics prove that. Inner city statistics, the the um, the, the rates of suicide amongst uh, Native American communities and, and, and other uh, peoples of color communities, in contrast to to uh, others. I mean, you know, the, the statistics are there. And so I think that people should not be afraid of that, but they should, you know, really own that, right? And, and by owning that is the real way that we're going to move ahead, and, and, and people need to understand that. The other thing is that I think that as teachers, um, one thing that you could do is when, we're, when you're presenting uh, these narratives, I mean, just on, on, a, on a glance, you could see is a perspective being left out and and how do we if that's the case how do we do that for example um when my daughter was younger she brought home like a coloring page Mm -hmm. of christopher columbus looking very happy wow in a boat you know and then all that was mentioned was that and he met native americans but there was no mention of the name of the tribe the taino people right and there was no coloring or page of how happy the natives looked right. <laughs> before he got there. So these are kind of things that I that I brought up uh, to the teacher and, and that, you know, by just focusing on the individual and not, you know, the, the, the community that he met and the contributions of the community are really helping to erase, erase that history and that side of history, which is why people you know, grow up thinking that, oh, it's not so bad, you know, he wasn't so bad, uh, and this kind of mythology kind of just builds upon itself and becomes stronger, and, and, you know, from what I see and what I've heard, you know, from the other side uh, on the Columbus issue in particular, there's almost like a a religious adherence to Columbus, it's almost like he's become a, a religious icon that, that can't be touched like a sacred cow, right? right. And, uh, you know, this has to be dismantled because, that, you know, it, it's not the case. And, and there's, there's facts to, to prove that. And, uh, you know, for example, Columbus initiated the transatlantic slave trade. How did he do that? Why? Because as soon as he got to the, the so-called New World, from his perspective, he gathered up a, a number of Taino people and took them across the ocean as slaves, right? He enslaved them and took them across the ocean and brought them to Spain. And that started this transatlantic slave trade. I mentioned this in, in, my, in the hearing the other day, by the way, and just to show you how people hear that, I said specifically that Columbus initiated the transatlantic slave trade. And the next person who came up who was Italian uh, said, I can't believe what I heard that, you know, uh, Columbus uh, started the African-American slave trade. And that's not what I said, but yeah. this is what people hear. Yeah, right. right. And so, you know, they're not, so they're not listening to listen. They're just waiting to respond. And Absolutely. obviously a lot of the responses are already preconceived and preconditioned. So, you know, getting back to the teachers, you know, where do they get this information from and how do we uh, kind of mitigate some of that crazy conditioning, right? And the only way to do that is by presenting, you know, more of a balanced view very early on in the curriculum. Absolutely. I really appreciate the um, you speaking on the difference between talking about an individual like Columbus and then bringing in the community of the Taino people. What, how did those people live before Columbus was there? I'm wondering if you can speak a little bit more about the, um, 
My reason for asking this question is that I think a problem is that students see Native Americans as a thing of the past. What are some of the current struggles for Taino people? And could you speak more about some of the current struggles you're working with uh, with the Treaty Council and in solidarity with other nations? Yeah, sure. I mean, current current struggles of, of Taino people, I mean, as a result of colonization and genocide, I mean, just to be quite honest and frank and upfront, you know, we are now from going from inhabiting our ancestors, inhabiting all the major Caribbean islands, the larger islands, and even into the southern tip of Florida, right? We're now minorities in all those islands. Mm-hmm. I, to give you an idea or an example, in Puerto Rico, there's over three million inhabitants of that of that island, and probably about only thirty-two thousand of those folks on the on the last census identified themselves as American Indian and about maybe about 28,000 out of those identified themselves as as Taino. You know, so you're looking at a very uh, well I think that those numbers are actually very skewed because some people don't understand the census forms and you know our our population is higher on the island where I still know that we are a minority and we mm-hmm. if if you know, not only a physical minority, but just our way of viewing the Earth is, is in the minority. And so you can imagine how difficult it is to mitigate and, and, and to to continue to try to promote your culture, and which is why many people see the, the uh, American Indians as a thing of the past, because yeah. they're only relating to those early encounters, right? And that, that goes for Taino and uh, just like the, the Standing Rock Sioux and, and, and other Plains Indians in, in the United States. It's like, you know, people see um, those certain points in history, cowboys and Indians and teepees. And, and you could imagine still today, you still run into people to say, do they, who ask, do Native Americans still live in teepees? And it really shows the disconnect between the contemporary issues of, of you know, loss of land, loss of language, uh, con- uh, the imp- the imposition of extractive industries like oil companies, coal companies, uh, on indigenous land, impacting sacred sites and sacred areas, high rates of of indigenous suicide, all throughout you know the U.S., Latin America, and and beyond. And this is one of the commonalities, unfortunately, that indigenous peoples have because of this oppression and this ongoing oppression. You know, it really affects the fabric of the societies. It affects your homes. There's, you know. In many cases, alcoholism or some kind of of, of mental uh, disorder or, or dysfunction uh, because of the breakdown of traditional values of of really what um, has been passed on over generations, right? And, and people just see themselves as as this other, right? And and this is what like um, you know that these these uh, mainstream narratives have it, right? So you look on TV and you, you, you mainly see one group of people in the majority. And, you know, every, you have movies like that, you have music like that, etc. And it kind of gets into people's psyche, right? And saying, well, I don't look like that. This is a, mm-hmm. am I really part of this world or am I not? Or, you know, who should I listen to? Am I listening to my grandparents who maybe not have gone to school up to a certain age? Or should I be listening to my teachers who may be completely different or come from a whole different background than, than I do? And it, it sets up these kind of challenges in, in, in your mind, and et cetera. And all of this has to be taken into, cons- into consideration, but we see this across, like with the work that we do for Treaty Council, uh, you know, one of these um, commonalities that we have, again, I mentioned loss of land and, and the extractive industries or impact on our on our access to fresh water. You know, these are, these are human rights impacts that indigenous people seem to disproportionately suffer. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, at the uh, they suffer at the expense, right, of 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 the good feelings and 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 of the other larger communities. And I'll bring it back to Standing Rock. If you remember in the very beginning, or or maybe you're, you're not aware of this, but when they were talking about that pipeline, you know, there was there was a plan to to have it go uh, very close to Bismarck, North Dakota, 
which is a predominantly non-native city. Right. But the residents in Bismarck, citing concerns about their water and their water supply, of course, you know, spoke out against that. And so the plans to, for that pipeline were moved. And where did they move it? Even closer in proximity to the Standing Rock Sioux Reservation, right? And so you see, so why is it that that, that larger group, right, of, of people, predominantly non-Indigenous peoples, their voice was somehow more effective than the indigenous peoples uh, who were in that area, in that case, the, the Standing Rock Sioux. And it's not only the Standing Rock Sioux were, uh, who were affected, but, you know, you have the Cheyenne River Sioux, et cetera. But it just kind of gives you an idea of, of those plays. So we, we work with people on those issues, trying to highlight at a higher level uh, through the United Nations system, uh, the, the rights for, of indigenous peoples, IITC was kind of at the forefront, along with other organizations, uh, to really bring about or to advocate for the Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples. And, you know, now that there is this declaration, which most of the countries of the, of the world kind of signed on to, you know, how do you bring that declaration and that understanding of what are the human rights of indigenous peoples, which go beyond individual rights, right? Because that's the, the real key when you're talking about indigenous peoples. When you talk about human rights, you're really talking about, uh, in, in the larger sense, the rights that impact an individual, like do I have access to water, do I have access to, you know, leisure time, uh, you know, uh, et cetera. Um, but when you're talking about indigenous peoples, you're also talking about collective rights, and there are collective rights in the human rights regime, and that's what's really important to indigenous peoples, because you're talking about lands, territories, and resources. So uh, for us, everything from impact on fishing rights to climate change is super important because it all connects, right? It all connects at different levels, and, and you know, we're at the meetings, the UN meetings on climate change, but then it's also our responsibility to take that information and to do the best we can to disseminate it at the local and national level. So we have a lot of partners that we work with uh, in um, federally recognized tribes, state recognized tribes, non-recognized uh, tribes, to make sure that this kind of information gets out and that we continue to, to speak out for our rights. Yeah, thank you so much for all of that. I feel like that information is so important for us to hear and our listeners to hear and just um, the continued struggle and fight back, um, especially around all that stuff you talk around, the extraction of resources and land and water. Uh, we would like to just ask you one more question as, as we go out here is going forward and what would you like to see happen in the future around the National Day of Mourning and this Day of Thanksgiving? What would you wish for as we move forward? Well, I'd like to see a more equitable and accurate representation of the holiday. I mean, there's there's certainly nothing wrong with giving thanks. Mm -hmm. Indigenous peoples do that daily as far as I'm concerned. Mm -hmm. You know, in all the communities that I know, hell have Thanksgiving songs, they have uh, ceremonies of, of Thanksgiving. They have Thanksgiving addresses. It's not just one day, but it's you know it's it's kind of a mindset that takes you throughout the year and, and throughout your life. But in in this particular instance, you know there is there there are some kind of gaps in the stories, and there's some mythology, and I think that it would probably do be a lot better for people to understand where those gaps in the stories are, where the mythology begins, and, and where the truth uh, really starts, right? Uh, and, uh, you know, th those kind of entry points. Uh, as far as the National Day of Mourning, I mean, I think that it's an important event. Um, I, I know that in various indigenous communities, mourning, the term mourning has different connotations. You know, there's a, there's a mourning period when, you know, something first happens, and then there's a way of mourning that becomes almost like a, a celebratory um, kind of a, a action, right? And, and we wipe the tears, and, and we move forward, and, and we move forward in a celebratory way that... that so I, I think there's room for all of that in, in, in the narrative, but it would really be up to the organizers of the event, and they've been doing such a great job in, in getting so many people to continuously come 
to that event. I think they really need to be uh, commended on their efforts. You know, Treaty Council does a similar event on Alcatraz Island in San Francisco, mm-hmm. and this was again, this was a site of the Alcatraz uh, Island takeover, and um, you know, so we commemorate that and, and help organize that event. We have been doing that for the last 30 years. So uh, I think that one other good impact of, of my presence there that they not only to talk about what was happening on the island of Boriking, and along with my uh, sister Inaru Nikia from the Boyoate Bay, but uh, not only to raise the visibility of what was happening in Puerto Rico and the effects of the hurricane, so you talk about effects of indigenous peoples right now, that stronger hurricanes, climate change, that, that's that's one real clear effect of what's happening to us today. But my presence also kind of connected the two events as a representative of Treaty Council to remind indigenous peoples that, you know, here we are on the East Coast uh, at the National Day of Mourning, and right uh, almost at the same time, maybe a, a little earlier, is the um, Indigenous Peoples Sunrise uh, Gathering at Alcatraz Island. And, and I think it's pretty profound when you think about it in that context, because, you know, at, at a certain point in the American narrative, I think that uh, the powers that quote-unquote, the powers that be, really thought that indigenous peoples were going to disappear. But the fact that there are two powerful events going on on both sides of the country where indigenous peoples are the focus and are the speakers and people are listening to indigenous peoples, that's quite profound, and I'd like to see some more attention brought onto that. Yeah, thank you. I I agree with that, and I think that was um, great for us to be there and see that too. Thank you so much for sharing this time with us and for sharing your voice. It's really meaningful, and I know that um, my students are going to look forward to hearing from you when I share this uh, radio clips uh, in my classroom. Yeah, thank you so much, Roberto. Well, thank you for the time. I really appreciate it and appreciate uh, your efforts to help get these stories out, and it was an honor for me to be on the show. So thank you very much. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye, Roberto. All right, we are um, going to take a, a quick song break. We're going to listen to a song called Unity Song by American Indian Movement, and we will be right back.
that was Unity Song by American Indian Movement. And we are Indigo Radio. We just interviewed Roberto Barrero. Uh, he is a member of the Indigenous Taino Nation. And it was really awesome to have him on the show. If you missed that interview, we will be posting the recording online. Right now, we're going to go to a very short clip of uh, a Springfield, Vermont student. We had our friend Becca Polk, who is a teacher in Springfield, Vermont. She's a seventh and eighth grade teacher. She was also at the Day of Mourning, and she brought four students with her. And I had an opportunity to interview one of them. Her name is Olivia Loney, and this is what she had to say about being there at Plymouth. This is Anna for Indigo Radio, and we are here in Plymouth, Massachusetts. I'm sitting here with Olivia, is that right? Yeah. And Olivia, where are you from? I'm from Springfield, Vermont. What brought you here today? I heard that it was a group rally and a um, march for indigenous people. How do you usually spend this day? I usually spend it at home um, helping my mom and my grandmother cook. What have you learned about Thanksgiving in the past? Well, in the past I always thought that pilgrims and um, Columbus and the Native Americans were all like friends and partners, but now that I know that they like kind of sabotaged the um, Native Americans, that's why I wanted to come here. How do you feel like your experience has been today? Um, it was very moving because people came up and they all shared how they felt about their surroundings. Do you think that people should learn the real story about this day and the conditions of indigenous people and their history? I think when, they old, when they're older they should, but as kids I think it might be a little too gruesome for them. Uh, what do you think people, indigenous people might say about that? Um, I don't, um, I don't know actually. I mean, it's like not true, but it's, I mean, the truth is not always the best for children to know, I guess. Do you think that you would ever come back to the Plymouth Day of Morning? Most definitely, because I really enjoyed this day. Great. And what do you think is your, what would you say is your biggest takeaway that you might, when you go home, talk to your family or other friends, what would you say is one of the biggest takeaways you've had today? Um, seeing everyone just come together and know and understand each other. Awesome. Okay. Thank you so much, Olivia. No problem. That was uh, Olivia Looney from Springfield, Vermont, just sharing her experience of the day. And I want to go to her point where she expressed that it might be hard to talk to younger kids about the true history around Columbus and Thanksgiving and the holiday. And Corey, you teach fourth graders, young kids, and I'd love to hear what you think about what she said and how you go about teaching some of this stuff to kids. Right. I absolutely agree with Olivia that it's such a gruesome and difficult thing, subjects to talk about with young children. And that's, that's the difficult thing that, was a, that is a reality in our world that I think absolutely has to be talked about with young children. Um, so I guess one of the ways that I've gone about that in my classroom is going back to Roberto and the talk about um, how these are communities that have lived uh, on this land for, for years and years before colonization and the invasion of Europe. And to teach students about how people have lived on this land, we just finished reading about uh, a book called Morning Girl by Michael Doris about uh, Taino brother and sister and the celebrations that they have on their land and the relationships that they have. And it's really an effort to humanize the Taino people so that when students are learning about the invasion of Europe, they're not just looking at this as a thing of the past where, um, where they, they get this kind of cookie-cutter image of Indians. And instead, they're, they're seeing these are real people that have thoughts and feelings like them. And I think when you start to connect with... Um, Taino people as humans, as with Abenaki people as humans, then you 
how can you not explain like what happened? And yes, there was a genocide. Yes, there was spreading disease, but also there was resistance. And so sharing the resistance and the hopes and the um, struggles that people face today and the telling the stories and voices, it gives, it gives students hope. Also, there's, you know, there's students that have indigenous um, backgrounds and blood and you, you, you want to know your history. You have to know your history in order to move forward. So I guess that's my short answer for um, why that's, this is such an important message to tell even young students. And um, I think it's key what you said about humanizing. I think that is so important and not making it invisible and that there are actually ways that you can talk about this with, with young people. Corey, you're going to introduce us um, to Leonard Peltier and talk a little bit about that. At the day of mourning, each year, Bert Waters reads the statement from Leonard Peltier. Um, Leonard Peltier is a native political prisoner who was framed uh, by the FBI for a crime he did not do. He's been in prison since 1976. I'm about to play a clip from Bert Waters, an 86-year-old elder, reading a statement from Leonard Peltier. Uh, at the day of mourning this past Thursday. Or in some past statement years back, however, it comes to my thoughts how the term day of mourning makes me think of a reverse as in the morning of the new day and how one term refers to those caught up in a deep sorrow and how the other term is a promise of a new beginning and the rising of the sun. In our traditions and culture, most tribal nations historically did a mourning period of one year for the deceased. However, for us during this point in time, we are continually losing our people, and especially our young people and our women who continually disappear with no trace. Ours lands are constantly violated. The air, the water, the soil, all of nature is screaming against the injustice that is continually perpetrated by those who worship money. So, in essence, I want to say in the loudest voice and in the most sincere voice I can possibly speak, we don't have a day of mourning. We have generations of mourning. Year after year, I don't know what I can do further from where I'm at. But in whatever way possible, I want to add my scream to the scream of the earth and the scream of, of our people for justice. These ecological disasters caused by the wealthy must stop. Those people who are destroying the earth must realize that they ultimately will destroy themselves also. I know many of you have taken part in the prayers and vigils and stood strong in the face of wrongful beatings and shootings and various other forms of violence. And I commend you for your bravery. Having said that, I want to encourage you to move forward to a new day. With each new day, we need to rise to the occasion to defend what is right and to do what we can to right what is wrong. Our enemy is not any person of particular color. Our enemy is those who are ignorant of the re reality that we are all intricate part of the whole circle, the circle of life. We must arm ourselves with the knowledge it takes to bring attention to the wrongness of their thinking, the wrongness of their exploitation of our Mother Earth, and wrongness of their mistreatment of the indigenous peoples throughout our lands. I would encourage you to mourn, if that is your way, and to do whatever to and to whatever length of time that is required by your teachings. However, I sincerely encourage each and every one of you to take it upon yourself 
to become a warrior of one. Educate yourself. Find the knowledge it takes to survive and thrive in a good way and to confront the ignorance of those who are destroying the natural. Confront them in such a way that they will come to know that to destroy the earth, to destroy our people, to continually ignore the a philosophy and teachings that allowed this land to exist since the beginning of time in a beautiful natural existence, they will ultimately destroy themselves and all life. Perhaps I've said too much. I don't know what your agenda is today. <laughs> Obviously, I have more time than you. I want to say in closing though, I love you. I love you and I love you wherever you are. I love you and I love what you want. I love that you want to make a difference and I will pray for you always. I further want to say you are making, you are making a difference. You have made a difference. Power to the people, power to the earth. If you have any questions about donations for my legal team, please call on our office number in Tampa, Florida, and join us in the struggle for my freedom to join you here in person, a dream of mine for many years. In the spirit of Crazy Horse, the shock, Leonard Peltier. And welcome back. This is Indigo Radio. We only have a couple more minutes left on our show, and we would like to end with a uh, song, a dedication to Leonard Peltier, a uh, track performed by Buggin Malone. And thank you for joining us today, and tune in next week at noon on Indigo Radio. Yeah, thanks, everyone. The Badlands, South Dakota, has been a homicide on Indian land, several in recent years. There's a militant group operating on the reservation. We have the third world slap dab in the middle of America. So we will smoke the pipe and there'll be no lies between us.
us An isolated incident That's what it's called When the cops break the law Attempted homicide When we just break the jaw You treat us like shit We just wake up my hands We don't give a shit Cause we're in God's hands We live many years And we'll go on living Why are we thankful For Thanksgiving Opened up our arms To a bunch of penguins Few years later They were calling us Indians And now Many, many, many moons later Wish you wouldn't ever Pop the damn equator Say this with pride Don't have fear Dedication to that man Mr. Red is the color of my skin without a doubt Living with the government, I'd rather live